We're going to read from 1 Chronicles 29 again. Um, it's page 573 in the Brown Bibles, if you picked one up. And uh, hold your finger there. We're also going to read from Matthew 25. And uh, you'll find that page 1462. So we're going to read from those two places. I'll start in 1 Chronicles 29. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, and timony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. Because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 darics of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord, in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite, Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also greatly rejoiced. Now turn over to Matthew 25. We'll pick up from verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master... You delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given. And he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is God's word. What I want to do today uh, is really just focus in on those last verses that we read from 1 Chronicles 29. And... Basically, my aim is to kind of give you an extended meditation on, um, on leadership. 
the we'll come back to the passage in just a moment. But what I, I'm hoping is not so much to give you an exposition of it, but rather just to talk to you heart to heart on some of the things which I think uh, came to mind and spring from the idea of leadership as we see it here in this passage. And um, just to bring you up to speed as well and to recap, we're just doing a series through 1 Chronicles 29, through the chapter. And it's about David calling the people to commit themselves to the building of the temple. And we were saying last week how um, the temple, as it stood those 3,000 years ago, was a prefigurement of the church of Jesus. And um, the church has in many ways superseded the temple. And the call, therefore, there's so many resonances in terms of what the chapter teaches us about David calling the people on board to engagement with this, to what it means today to be involved with the building of Christ's church in the world. And not only when we consider it at the global scale, the church of Jesus is now in just about every nation on the planet and is, is growing and growing. But it's also at the micro scale of what we're doing here in a little uh, corner of the world called North Lambeth, in a little church that's brand new, that every time a church is planted, it's like a, a mini expression of God's temple finds a face to the area so that it can display something of God's glory in the world. And God's ambitions, as I've been trying to say so, so often and so many times, is, is, put, is put perfectly in Habakkuk 2, where he says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that the earth will be filled, sorry, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That God has this global ambition to fill the planet with his, his fame, his beauty, his dignity, to recover order in creation. So a lot of you probably saw um, Stephen Fry's little rant that's been going around. And the video just expressing with great anger how he feels about the God he doesn't believe in. And I think one of the answers to that, and there are many, many things that have to be said to that, and many things that people have been saying to it for thousands of years, but one of the things that has to be said to it is that he's jumping in to the middle of the story, and that God, in reclaiming his planet and filling it with his glory, is turning that story around. He's undoing the curse. He's undoing everything that's gone wrong with life here on this, this dark place. And what I want us to come to today, and what I really want us to think about and focus upon is this, that in God's order and the way he set things up, he has chosen, although he could have done it in other ways, I'm sure, he has chosen to work through people. And he's chosen to call individuals to certain callings, all of us, in fact, to varying degrees. And that he's called us to positions of leadership in different ways and different expressions. And that the furthering of his plan and mission in the world is pivotal upon leadership. So what you see here in this chapter, and this might be the last time I look at it, by the way, (laughs) is there in verse 5, he says, Who then will offer willingly consecrating himself to the Lord? And it says, Then the leaders of the Father's houses made their free will offerings. The leaders did it. They chose, they said, step forward immediately and they said, I'm going to do this. It says, as did the leaders of the tribes and so on and so on. And then in the last verse we read, verse 9, it says, the people, this is where their response of the rest of Israel, it says they rejoiced because they, the leaders, had given willingly for with a whole heart they'd offered freely to the Lord. And David also, David the king also rejoiced. In that moment, the history of Israel was altered because the entire weight of the wealth of the nation was put behind this project because the leaders decided that they were going to get on board with it. And so this is what I mean when I say that leadership is a pivotal thing. I was reading a biography of Winston Churchill, or kind of a biography of Winston Churchill, just this last week. And, I mean, he's been... He was a world-changing leader. He made many atrocious mistakes in his career. But one of the things that he will be remembered for was that he helped win the Second World War. How did he do it? It's not that he ever, in that war, fired a gun at anybody or rode out into battle. He tried to get near to battle once or twice, but the king wouldn't allow it. 
And uh, so how did he do it? And the, the answer is that he, through leadership. By the time 1940 had come along, the, the British Empire, which was the biggest in the world, the world's ever seen, in fact, was being annihilated, was being trashed by German troops. Even when they were outnumbered, when the Germans were outnumbered two or three to one, they seemed to be able to just whoop the British troops. And there had been a lot of analysis and hand-wringing about what went wrong. Why were the Brits so poor in battle? But whichever way you look at it uh, is embarrassing, but basically there was just this dismal sense that the Nazis were going to win if no one stopped them. Of course, there were exceptions to this. And there came a point in 1940 where Churchill had this realization. And uh, it was recorded um, in this little story that was written down by his son, uh, Randolph. He said that he found his father, the prime minister, standing in front of his basin and shaving with an old-fashioned valet razor. Sit down, dear boy, and read the papers while I finish shaving. I did as I was told. And after two or three minutes of hacking away, he half turned and said, I think I can see my way through. Now, this is 1940. And uh, things were pretty dark at the time. I was astounded and said, do you mean that we can avoid defeat, which seemed credible, or beat the bleep, which seemed incredible, And he flung his valet razor into the basin, swung around and said, of course I mean we can beat them. Well, I'm all for it, but I don't see how you can do it. And by this time, he had dried and sponged his face and turning around to me, said with great intensity, I shall drag the United States in. Now that was just one example of the kind of leadership that he exercised. He went about in his own sort of matchless way, charming the USA to get into World War II, and as a result, with all their resources and armaments, they poured themselves into the thing, and uh, history was turned. They were going to let Europe be taken over until that point, until Churchill just made up his mind, no, this is not going to happen, you guys are going to fight too. That's what I mean when I say leadership is a pivotal thing. It's not that Churchill in himself was engaged in the battle, is that he was like a lever. You can imagine the USA just being this giant boulder just on the top of a hill. He was the tiny lever that just tipped the thing and started the process, started the ball rolling. There were other factors like the bombing of Pearl Harbor and whatever. But it start, that was his pivotal leadership role, really, that, that kind of overshadows everything in my mind about what else he accomplished in the Second World War. That is why leadership is a pivotal thing. And the Bible shows us the same is true. It shows us again and again that God's methods are to use ones and twos, to use individuals to change the course of history, to change the course of his, his own kingdom. You remember how um, Jesus called just 12 men. He says, come follow me and I shall make you fishers of men. There's different ways you could... Um, explain what's going on there, but essentially it's this, that he took 12 men from all their walks of life and and decide they're going to be the leaders of this new global mission that's still moving forward. You then find Jesus doing the exact same thing with a man who was, uh, well, of, of everyone in the history of the church, he was one of the most violent persecutors of the church. He would certainly have considered himself that. But in Acts 9.15, you hear God talking to a man called Ananias about Saul, or Paul as we know him. And he says this, he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, just an instrument in my hand, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was going to be just one man, but one man who would change the course of history because God works through leaders like that. And Paul grasped this pretty clearly in his own mind and understanding of how churches, how the church would, would continue to move and grow through the running centuries. So you find a verse like this in 2 Timothy 2 where he pretty much sums up his own strategy. 
He says, you then, speaking to Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, make it the priority of your ministry that if you see nothing else happen, you are going to make sure that you raise up leaders within the church who will then pass on what I've taught you and raise up leaders of their own after them. Because leadership is pivotal. Now, in wanting to open up a subject like this, I know that there are immediately going to be different responses because on the one hand, there are those of us sat here who feel a kind of a yes in our spirits that says, yes, this is what I I yearn for, I want to be involved, I'm on board, I'm all in, the mission of Jesus Christ, you know, yes, let's do it. And I say more power to you. Romans 12, Paul says that he who leads should lead with zeal. Absolutely. If this is your passion, put more wood in 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 the fire and let that passion burn stronger and go for it. But really what I wanted to do today was talk to the rest of you. And I'm sure all of us will get something from this. But I wanted to talk to to those of you who feel that for any number of reasons, and I'm going to try and open up a number of them, you feel that you would not, you wouldn't feel permission perhaps to rise to the call to being used by God in some capacity of leadership for for any kind of number of reasons. And it's you I want to speak to. And I would encourage you to pay attention to what I'm going to say. But I would just begin by telling you this. Although I feel called personally to leadership and have done from a young age, in many ways I'm a reluctant leader, unnatural in the role. And I think that's fine. I think God uses all kinds of people, as you'll hear from what I want to say. So I'm going to address seven excuses that that you might say to me. Um about why you're not called to any form of leadership in or outside the church. And I'm going to knock them all down, and by the end of it, um, you're all going to feel a bit different. I'll just say as well, I've been pretty ill this week and totally wiped out, and it, I just, it was the hardest thing just preparing this. And if I am totally incoherent, you just have to forgive me and try and, and pay attention anyway. But let me, let me begin. The first excuse, then, that you might say is this. I... I don't lead anything. I literally don't lead anything. There is no sphere of life in which God has given me anything akin to a measure of responsibility or authority. I'm just not a leader. Now, to those of you who might say that, I would start a step backwards and ask you this. What do you think leadership is? Because in my view... While one expression of leadership can be authority over other people, that's not the whole picture. I think a better word to capture the essence of what leadership is, is the word stewardship. That God puts within every person, every thinking, acting person, every person's disposal, certain resources, and that can include people, but it can also include Time and it can include money and, and uh, all kinds of resources, gifts especially. This is one of the reasons why I read you that passage from Matthew 25. God puts within your authority something that you can use, something that you are called to govern or to steward, and that in doing that, you are called to leadership. So while you may never tell another person what to do, which is a kind of very rough way of thinking of leadership anyway, you do have a stewardship that's given to you from God. You need to wake up to that today and realize that. So at the very minimum, when we're thinking about leadership, we can talk about self-leadership, first of all. Because that's the bottom layer that all of us start from. Leading yourself, leading what God has given to you that nobody else has the particular talents you have, the particular resources you have, and your time. So, what I'm trying to encourage you to do is not think in terms of what are the positions I hold, but rather, what is it that God has entrusted to me? That's why I read to you from Matthew 25. 
what we find there is that God entrusts, or the master entrusts, different guys with different numbers of talents, which is just a measurement of resources. Some people are ten-talent people, in that God just seems to give them the opportunities, the skills, the, the brains, all of it, that they are they're up there. And maybe you could just call it luck. I think of it sovereignty of the God. But some people just end up in the highest streams of authority on the planet. Others of us don't. We might be one-talent people. You may only ever have to lead yourself in life. But you are just as accountable before the same master who is looking at you. So you can't tell me you don't lead anything because you are called to lead yourself as a very minimum. And you have to understand that the Bible shows us again and again that there is a system of, of testing that God puts people through by which authority can increase and grow. It says in one of the Psalms that promotion doesn't come from the east or from the west, but it comes from the Lord. And you see that story being played out, not only in the parable that I told you, when the ten-talent guy multiplies it into twenty, and then he's given extraordinary authority. But you see it in the stories of individuals in the Bible. So someone like Joseph. Joseph had every reason to become a passive-aggressive sulker because he thought one thing about his future, that he would be be the chief of all the the, the tribes, really, of all his brothers, that everyone would bow down to him. And what actually played out was that he was put to the very bottom of society, a slave of slaves, a man with no status in a foreign country, and then it got worse and he was put into jail. But what you find again and again is that because of what God had put in him and his ability to lead himself and then that being expressed in his ability to lead others, he began to raise up and be raised up through the sovereignty of God. And I think this is how leadership works. That you may not lead much at the moment, but when you lead it well, God takes note. And God uses that as a testing and a training ground to put you into greater and greater authority in life. That's the first excuse. Number two, you might say this to me. I'm not ready or I'm not qualified to lead. Now, I admit that we're not all equally gifted. I've already said it. It comes through very clearly in Matthew 25. I think that one of the flaws of a Western mindset and the kind of pushes for equality is that in reality we're not all equal just by virtue of your genetics and your opportunities and all these kinds of things. And so it's important therefore that you do look at yourself. Paul says that we should regard ourselves in Romans 12 with sober judgment that you should have an accurate assessment of yourself. And he says there not to think too highly of yourself, but I think the same is true also not to think too lowly of yourself. We have to be able to regard ourselves accurately. What is it that I am good at? What is it that I possess? And then make use of that for God's glory. Now you may then have an accurate assessment of yourself when you say, I'm not ready or I'm not particularly qualified for what God has in store for me. But I would encourage you not to think just in terms of a destination but rather in terms of trajectory, of where you're going, of how your path is playing out, of what God is doing through you, even in just the small ways right now. One of the greatest examples of this in the Bible for me is is the story of Daniel. I love just thinking back to his example. At the pinnacle of his career, Daniel was one of the greatest civil servants in history, one of the most powerful civil servants in history. He's one of those guys with a kind of guaranteed civil service job. We call them mandarins in this country who work behind the scene. You never really necessarily know who they are, but they wield enormous power. They're not elected or whatever. They're just around the men who have the power. And Daniel was one of those guys at the very peak of what he did. He was, he was the, the highest um, empowered civil servant to, to emperors in the Middle East and some of the biggest empires in history. But it began for Daniel when he was ripped out of his home, 
ripped out of his, his country, put into a foreign place, put into a palace, put in a regime of learning and studying in something which he could have just reacted against and been annoyed with. And he doesn't overnight fall into this position of authority. There is a sequence, there is a growth that takes place in Daniel's life and it begins with his first decision. Am I going to completely imbibe the religion and the way of thinking of the people in which I've become immersed? Or am I going to remember my God? The reason why I wanted to bring your attention back to this man, Daniel, is just to, to, to make you wake up to the, the fact, it's the same that's true of Joseph, that these things play out as a trajectory in life. Choices follow choices. And that small faithfulness works its way out into bigger and bigger entrustment as God gives you more and more responsibility. You don't land fully grown into the person that you would dream or aspire to be. You don't arrive on the planet as a world shaper and a world changer or even just a household changer. You arrive on the planet as somebody with some opportunities that God's put in front of you and then a calling to exercise faithfulness with what you've been given. So yeah, you might accurately look at yourself and you may truly, honestly, not be ready for all the things that God would have in store for you. But he's watching you now. And what are you doing now? Sometimes God's plan takes decades to unfold. I don't know if you've realized this, but do you know that Moses was 80 by the time he became a deliverer? He spent 40 years in a palace, then 40 years as a shepherd in the desert. And it was only after all those years, that's two careers, it was only after all those decades that God looked at him and said, he's ready now. He's humble enough, really. He's ready now. And I think the same happens with us. God is sovereign over the story in your life. I'm certain about nothing. With, uh, there's nothing I'm more certain about than that. That God is in control of the details of our lives. And that he is working out a plan. Because that's what you see time and time again played out in the scriptures. So I don't care if you're not ready now. The only thing you have to do is be faithful with what God's put in front of you today. Paul said to Timothy, don't let them look down on you because you are young. We could say because you are inexperienced or because you are not yet qualified. You're beginning a process. What are you doing right now to offer your gifts to God? So you might say, I don't lead anything or I'm not ready or qualified. Third, you might say this. I would probably fail because I always fail. Now that might seem laughable to some of you, but I think there are many of us who feel a kind of Eeyore-style pessimism about life and about opportunities. In fact, it's almost part of being British. We're not Americans. We're not that kind of we can do it, yes we can, type people with pom-poms, we tend to look at ourselves, and this is actually genuinely one of the reasons they think that the Brits were losing in the Second World War. They just didn't have that killer instinct that said, we can do this, um, in comparison with the other more grand, starred and striped nations. <laughs> now, I would just want to call you out on this and say, listen, pessimism is not just a kind of cute character foible. Pessimism can be a matter of sin in the life of a Christian. I know that we're wired differently and we need to take into account different personalities and all those kinds of things and all those caveats and we don't want to get into all of that. But a pessimistic outlook on life is a statement that God is not in control. It seems to me that when David issued this challenge, this call to the leaders of Israel and invited them to get on board with the building of this temple, that they could well have responded 
with a couple of huge and very, very weighty objections. They could have said that it's too expensive and that all the money that they were pouring into the temple could have been used for the alleviation of poverty and all those kinds of things. And it reminds me a lot of what Judas said when the perfume was poured on Jesus. He said, this money could have been given to the poor. And it would have been a valid excuse from engagement with this. They're saying, David, you're crazy. This is just your ego talking. It's far too expensive. They could have said that. Or they could have said something similar, which is just that it's, it's, it's unnecessary. You know, they had the tabernacle that God himself designed. God gave Moses the exact specifications for the building of the tent where they were to keep the Ark of the Covenant. So why on earth did David get it in his mind that he needed to build God a temple and say, God, it's not even good enough for you. What you designed, I'm going to design you something better. There are all these valid excuses that could have been thrown at David that day. And it would have been wrong. And what I think you need to grasp is that there is a kind of Christ-like, godly optimism that ought to characterize the life of the believer. So though you may have failed a thousand times, in all kinds of ways, God wants to enable you to accomplish his will in in the earth. This is not a blind optimism. It's not the kind of optimism that you, you, you hear in all the kind of um, the whipped up self-help li- literature and the positive psychology movement and all those things. They are a copy of this because this is the original. This is faith in God. This is knowing that my optimism is rooted and built upon the rock of the unchanging God of Israel. So when Christ said that he builds his life on my words. It's like the man who built his house upon the rock. He was saying that that man will have a good outlook on life and on the storms of life because he knows that he can weather it because he is founded and built upon Christ and his word. And that kind of a certainty ought to characterize the life of the believer and of the church as a whole. It ought to characterize your life. Faith is a gift from God, the Bible says, but it also says that it's something you have to exercise and put into effect. Which means that you have to make courageous decisions at times in the face of things that scare you and in the face of failure. Fourth, you might say to me this, Andrew, I have absolutely no desire to lead in any capacity. And I would then want to ask you, is that apathy or is that humility? Because they're two very different things. If it's apathy, which is just a kind of um, whatever approach to life, and no real engagement with the plans and purpose of, of Christ in the world, if it's apathy, again, I would call that out and say that is not something that Christ would find pleasing. The Bible again and again find points us to men who are zealous. That's why I read or quoted to you that verse from Romans 12 where it says, He who leads, lead with zeal. Do you remember when Jesus overturned the tables of the, of the money changers in the temple? His disciples were reminded of a verse from the Psalms which says this, Zeal for your house consumes me. Zeal is the opposite of apathy. Zeal is a willingness to do something very embarrassing, very public, very prone to repercussions because the cause outweighs all of the negatives. Apathy just sits back and does nothing. So if you say to me, look, I have no desire to be involved in leadership, I'd want to know, first of all, if it's apathy or not. And if it's not, if you're a passionate person, you want to serve in whatever way God's given you, you just don't want to be a leader in any kind or form, I would then ask you this, is it humility then? And if it's humility, then maybe that's a good thing. I came across this quote from A.W. Tozer just this week. He said, A true and safe leader is likely to be one who has no desire to lead, but is forced into a position of leadership by the inward pressure of the Holy Spirit and the press of external 
of the external situation. You kind of get cornered, in other words, by God inside you and circumstances around you and pushing you into things you wouldn't otherwise do. Such were Moses and David and the Old Testament prophets. I believe it might be accepted as a fairly reliable rule of thumb that the man who is ambitious to lead is disqualified as a leader. And the true leader will have no desire to lord it over God's heritage, but will be humble, gentle, and self-sacrificing, and altogether as ready to follow as to lead. I think he may have slightly overstated the case there, but there's some truth in that. That your very reluctance might indeed reveal something in you that God would want to use. Fifth, you might say this to me, I'm too shy. This is certainly something that I would have felt many times in my life. I recently read an extraordinary book um, by a lady called Susan Cain. She's Jewish, or son of a a rabbi, actually, um, in the States. Sorry, daughter of a rabbi. Um, And uh, she wrote this book, Quiet, which is about introversion. Now, it's not a Christian book, but it is an utterly paradigm-shifting book about... um, introversion and shyness and all these kinds of things. And she, she talks and she makes a very powerful case for what she calls the rise of the cult of personality that started in the States about the early 1900s, the turn of the century then, where society went from looking at people based on character. So they've done some good things and some terrible things, haven't they? That's why <laughs> you guys are chuckling, I'm sure. The, um, they, society went from what was I saying? The cult of, sorry, the assessing people based on character to based on their personality. So whereas people were, were chosen for positions of leadership and influence and authority and all these kinds of things based on sound and good character at one stage in history, I mean, this is kind of oversimplification. So much of, of what we've experienced in the Western world has been a push toward the cult of personality. And one of the examples she gives of this is, is an example of Harvard Business School. She says that they made it a policy for their admissions that they would only accept extroverted, outgoing people to come and study at Harvard Business School because they said only those kinds of people can succeed in business. Now, one of the things she does so powerfully is that she completely overturns that notion um, and shows that obviously we're all made in different ways and we have different things to offer and especially in leadership. But we who are Christians should know this more than anyone else, right? Because the Bible already tells us this. The Bible has already told us what it is that God looks for when he's looking to put you in positions of authority. Do you remember when David was chosen? How in 1 Chronicles 16, 9, I think, actually, maybe I've got the passage wrong, but it says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And that was God's criteria for choosing David. He's looking at the heart of the man. Not is he out there, um, the natural leader. That was Saul who preceded him. Saul was the guy who it said was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was very tall. You can just imagine Danny Hutton, good-looking guy like that. Saul was the natural leader. Danny's actually much more like David in heart, though, I should add that. And uh, God, he said, I'm going to choose that boy. That boy is my leader. Why? Well, you only have to start reading the Psalms to understand why. Because there you see David's heart exposed for all history to learn about. It says about Moses in Numbers 12, verse 3, that he was the meekest man in the whole world. I find it interesting because he's, he wrote that book. <laughs> I'm sure that was added in later <laughs> by, by his uh, secretary or someone. It seems to me that if he were the stereotypical outgoing extroverted leader, he would never have written the Torah, the five books of Moses. But God chose a certain kind of leader, a reluctant leader. He's so reluctant, in fact, maybe crushed by the circumstances of life, maybe stung by past failure. All those things came to play in Moses' life. So reluctant that when God did address him by 
by name and call to him out of the burning bush and tell him to go into the land of Israel, uh, Egypt and deliver his people, he said, I don't have the words. I'm not, I'm not eloquent. I stammer. He's had some kind of speech, um, some kind of, how would you put it, inability to speak clearly. And he was embarrassed to stand up before Pharaoh and before all Israel and, and, and Egypt and announce that the people were going to l- 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 leave the land now. And so he, he just says, I don't want to do it. But God instead brings around him the things he needs and makes him, says, no, you're my man. And he, he puts him in that position of authority. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells us that Leadership in his kingdom is not lording it over others. You don't have to be a rah-rah type of person. He says it's service. In James 4, it tells us that God opposes the proud. I'm not saying that extroverts are always proud. And he gives grace to the humble. But what I am saying is this, that there is something about that God can use even in your quiet, shy retiring personality, if indeed that's you. And listen, if you are an extrovert, God can use you too. <laughs> Matthew 5.5 5 says that the meek shall inherit the earth. It's nothing really to do with your personality. It's about your, your character. Number six, you might say this to me. It's similar. You might say, I'm too afraid to lead. This is possibly the only valid excuse so far because fear is the most debilitating thing in the world. But two considerations ought to weigh with you if you find that you're a fearful person, unwilling to say yes to God and to obey Him. The first is that fear can reveal a lack of trust in God. And therefore can be a sin issue in your life. It's weird, isn't it? Because we tend to think that when we're addressing things like fear and shyness and, and uh, pessimism and all these things, that they're just part of our wiring. We just need people to be sympathetic towards us. When the Bible sometimes would just come and slap you around the face and say, listen, you need to repent of your sin. You have sin that you need to bring to Jesus and say, look, I confess. This is who I am naturally. Help me to change. Fear can reveal a lack of trust. You see it again, coming back to that parable, the parable of talents in Matthew 25. When the one talent guy he had an opportunity to make good with what he'd, he'd received. But you listen to how he says, how he, his excuse to the master. He says this, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. So he took his talent and he buried it in the ground. Fear, fear of man, fear of the master, craven fear, the wrong kind of fear, stopped him in this case. And I don't think that that is something Christ draws attention to by accident. It's not an irrelevant detail in that parable. He wants us to see that sometimes fear is a sin issue in your life and that a lack of courage expresses a lack of faith in the God who's called you. So what I'm talking about here again is not just a, a kind of, a, you know, you've got to suddenly change yourself and become all kind of rah-rah. In 1 John 4 it says that perfect love casts out fear. What does that mean? It means that you go from thinking about the master in the way that the guy does in the parable. I knew you to be a harsh master. The Christian is somebody whose understanding of God has completely changed. That's how they would have regarded him. But now that they see him through Christ, 
and all your failures and all your past messes just wiped away and all these riches poured into your lap, all the stuff you don't deserve. You experience what John calls perfect love. Which means you're accepted before you've even started. What's there to be afraid of if even in failure, God loves you? This is why God's perfect love casts out fear. It's not about working something up in yourself. It's about experiencing the kindness of a father who loves you tenderly. Last of all, you might say this, I'm not worthy to lead. The name Satan literally means accuser. And along with temptation to get you to sin, the other weapon that Satan uses, this is pincer movement on your life, is accusation for when you have sinned. He has basically these two hands at work. Temptation and accusation. And Revelation depicts his fall when he says that the accuser of the brothers has been cast down from heaven. This is why the gospel is so powerful. This is why the message of Christianity is so powerful. Because God isn't holding over you a maybe. You remember how the gladiators, after they would hold a sword over their opponent's neck in the amphitheaters and the Colosseum and so on, they'd look up to the emperor and the emperor would then give a judgment. Thumbs up or thumbs down whether you kill your opponent. And for as long as you live life under that sense of whether you're acceptable to God or not, because of an awareness of your sin, you're living under a completely wrong way of thinking that is so alien to Christianity, it's the very opposite of Christianity. Because Christianity, it doesn't make any sense when you, at one level, is this, that God looks at your life and he, he says you're acceptable before you've even done anything. Not because you're righteous, but because Christ was righteous and he gave you his righteousness as a gift. This is what we were celebrating at communion. So you may well, rightly, look at yourself and think, I'm not worthy, and and you'd be right. In so many ways, you would be right. Who of us, who of us qualifies to be anything in the kingdom of God? But Jesus said that the least of you will be greater than John the Baptist. And I think it had something to do with this, something to do with this inauguration, the beginning of the new covenant, where even the weakest believer in Christ at least knows Christ. And can be made great in him. So Paul said in Romans 8. That there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life. Has set you free. In Christ Jesus. From the law of sin and death. You no longer live under that code. That law is dead. You died to it when you died in Christ. And now Christ has made you righteous. So yes, you could look at yourself and say, I'm not worthy. But the gospel says, you belong to Jesus now. I drew your attention to this passage last week in 1 Timothy, where Paul's talking about himself. And he says that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the general statement of whom I am the foremost. That's specific. I think he's talking about himself. He's not saying that that's something all of us should say. He says, I, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, I am the foremost sinner. Then he says this, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. He's saying, Jesus used me as an example. 
He saved me so that he could show the world that he can take any person and make them into one of his greatest generals. So friend, whatever God's plans are for your life, never let this sense of condemnation and unworthiness disqualify you from doing his will. Let me close by just saying a few brief statements. If we were to dream together what it would look like for you as an individual to start to change today and to, like the leaders in 1 Chronicles, embrace what God is putting on your heart and, and, and put it into action and start to be more in Christ than you've ever been. What would it look like? Firstly, you would obey without delay. My parents, when we were kids, used to say, delayed obedience is disobedience. In other words, if you make me count, then you've already disobeyed me. You should do it right now. (laughs) I think there's something to that. Wasn't that Jonah's problem? He ran away. He got there in the end, but only after God had to basically kill him and then bring him back to life. (laughs) This is what happened, if you read it closely. You would obey without delay. What is God telling you to do with your life that you haven't acted on? You say, well, what do you mean, God telling me? I mean, the Spirit leads us. We walk by the Spirit, and also we read this book, and it's got a lot to say about how you should live your life. You'd obey without delay. Secondly, you'd make steps that demand courage. Now, in that, I mean that there are dramatic moments of decision that come in the life of a believer when they have to make a call that either is done in faith or done in fear. Thirdly, you'd be faithful and plod. This is the opposite. While there are dramatic moments that punctuate the life of a Christian, there's also the steady walking with God along the trajectory that I've been talking about. William Carey was a pioneer mission in the Victorian period who went to India. And the man was, he was a machine. He, he learned a whole range of Indian dialects and I think along with a team, they translated the Bible into dozens of languages. And when asked how he achieved what he achieved, his answer was, I plod. I'm a plodder. Sometimes faith and courage and all this stuff is not expressed so much in the dramatic moments of life, but in the day-to-day embracing God's will over all the other options. Just walking with God. That's Christian leadership. And sometimes it doesn't look that exciting. But you look back over decades of faithfulness and you see what God has done through individuals in whatever place God's put them, whether it's just in a family or it's in a workplace or it's in a church, wherever. Fourth, you would trust that God's in control. And fifth, You'd lean into him and his grace in the gospel.